The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. For quite some time now, we've actually now spent 38 lessons <laughs> so far uh, on the Christian life. And given the fact that those lessons are taught at least every other week, it's been at least 76 weeks that we've, uh, since we started this study. But it's more than that because there are several times where I, I don't teach for maybe three weeks or something like that. So I would say we're, we're looking at close to 90 weeks we've been looking at this study. So far we've looked at the seven calls from God and uh, how, how unique those calls are to the elect saints of God and how important each one is. We, we took time to study that. Then we, we took several, several lessons on Bible doctrine. And um, uh, doctrine, of course, we said is what? Teaching. Very good. And uh, so there are many forms of doctrine, and, uh, but not all doctrines are true doctrine. So we need, to, we need to study and pay attention to the doctrine we're being taught to make sure that we are adhering to true doctrine. You know, when I got saved, I made, I made two promises to the Lord. Uh, the first promise was that if he would help me, I would spend the rest of my life telling people about Jesus and, and, and his, his offer of salvation. But the second promise is this. I would, I would not, I, at that point, I had, I had just followed the opinions of men concerning spiritual things, but I made him a promise that I would never again allow myself to be deceived by a man concerning spiritual truth that I would become a student of the Word of God, and uh, that I would study to know God and to know truth. And by the way, we have the greatest teacher in the world. And I'm not talking about myself. Who do you think I'm talking about? The Holy Spirit. He is our teacher, is he not? Yes, he is. He is our teacher. That is, that is God's part of himself that he gives us to teach us truth. And... Let me just say this, a Christian. I, I, years ago, I, I saw one of these little chick tracks. Anybody know what a chick track is? I saw a little chick track, and, and in there, I saw a caption of a man who had just be, been saved, and I saw him in picture kneeling and, and praying and asking God to grant the Holy Spirit to teach him truth. And you know, that little caption impacted my life. And since that day till now, every day I pray and ask God that he would uh, give me his Holy Spirit to reveal truth to me in his word. So it's important that we know our doctrine. Then we spent several lessons on the judgment of the saints. And we looked at the many aspects of our lives that uh, will be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. And, and of course, we stressed, I hope, I hope you, you picked up on the fact that I was telling you we don't face that judgment for the purpose of punishment. For all of our sins were judged on the cross, past, present, and future. We don't, face, we don't, we don't go through that, that time to be punished. 
Christians have a bad idea that they, I hear them all the time say, God, God's punishing me. God doesn't punish you. Do you understand that? He punished, he punished everything you will do on the cross. Now, he may correct us, and he may chastise us, but he's not punishing us. God is not, God is not walking in heaven with a clipboard saying, oh, there he is, Dalton's messed up again. Let's punish him. Get down there and punish him, would you? No, God doesn't do that. You know what God will do, though, is he'll withhold blessings, and that's punishment enough, amen? Uh, he'll withhold blessings from us because of our disobedience. So uh, we looked at the judgment of the saints. Then we, we took several weeks and looked at the rapture of the church and looked at the many aspects of, of, of the rapture concerning uh, uh, the believer. And then, of course, we, we just finished uh, several lessons on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. Uh, you see, you're not, you're not by default a disciple when you get saved. People have the idea, well, I'm saved, I'm a disciple. Well, wait a minute now. You might be an elect saint, but are you a disciple? Well, if you're going to be a disciple, you have to meet the criteria as defined in the Word of God. And we looked at that, and uh, each of us should work daily at conforming to, to the discipleship of Christ so that we truly can be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, I'd like to turn my attention to the very last part of this study on the Christian life. Now, don't, don't, don't misquote me here. Today's not the last part, okay? We're entering the last part of our, our study, and that is on the church. So we're going to spend several weeks talking about the church. Uh, I'll begin today by answering the first question that comes to mind, and that is, what is the church? Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you give me your wisdom as I teach on this important subject of the church. I pray, Lord, that we would see the church for what it is, how important it is in our lives, and, uh, Lord, how important it is that we, that we understand and, uh, and abide in the church. Thank you for all these things. Now, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Webster defines church as a house consecrated to the worship of God. And among Christians, the Lord's house. Now this meaning, this definition would hold true in the minds of many people today. However, we must go back to the original language to find the meaning of this word church. The very first time the word church was used in scripture was in Matthew chapter 16 in verse 18. Prior to that scripture, the word church had never been used in scripture. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. You should be there. Let's look at verse 18 together. The Lord is speaking here and we read, and I say unto thee uh, that thou art Petro, or Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter uh, here is not, uh, the Catholic Church would have you believe that Peter is the foundation of the church. That he was the first pope. But that's, that's not true. If, if, I mean, if you read this verse in the, in the translated English language, you might be able to, to misstate that Peter is the rock that Jesus is speaking about. 
but it's not. You see, in the Greek word there, in the Greek language, there's two words for rock. One is Petra. Petra is a rock. The other is Petros. Petros is a stone. It's not a rock, it's a stone. That's kind of like in the Hispanic language, you've got, you've got Nina and Nino. Right? Am I right? I'm, I'm venturing into unknown territory here. Um, you've got Amiga and Amigo. And they're both, they're both the same word, but have different meanings. So, here in this verse, Jesus is saying, Thou art Petros. He's saying, Peter, you're a little stone. But upon this rock, this Petra, speaking of himself, I will build my church. The English commentator John Gill wrote, By the church is meant not an edifice of wood, stones, etc., but an assembly and congregation of men, and that not of any sort, not a disorderly, tumultuous assembly, in which sense this word is sometimes taken, but rather the elect of God, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that being Christ, whose names are written in heaven, and especially such of them as were to be gathered in and built on Christ from among the Jews and Gentiles. Now, I put that excerpt on your study sheets today because I wanted you to see historically what Baptist people believed concerning the church. It is important here to keep this scripture in context. Christ is speaking to Peter. He is, in essence, telling Peter that he, Christ, is the rock upon which the church shall be built. He's not crowning Peter as the foundation of the church. To take this statement by Christ and to imply that the church is built upon Peter would be to give credence to the Catholic doctrine that Peter was the first pope, the vicar of Christ, the universal head of the visible churches on earth. This I cannot do or accept. If they're right, we better, we better get with it, right? If they're right, we better, we better elect a pope tomorrow. Because if they're right, we're wrong. But are, are we wrong? No, we're not wrong. So what is the church? Well, one position taken by many today is that there are two aspects to the one true church. The church visible and the church invisible. The other position is that there are many churches. They are all local and they are all visible. Each is autonomous and complete in itself. Now, we at Berean hold to the latter of these two opinions. When scripture speaks of the church, it always speaks of a local assembly. The word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia, and it is literally translated as an assembly. Um, now, if, if, if I look at a completely built engine today, 
I can, I can call that an engine, right? Because it's assembled and it's functional. But if I look at a pile of parts over here, can I call that an engine? No. It's not assembled and it's not usable. So if we, if we have a local church, a, a, an assembly of believers who come together for the purpose of worship and honoring God, we can call that a church. Because it's assembled and it, it, it's usable. It serves a purpose. But if we believe in an invisible universal church, where is it? Well, it's invisible. You can't see it. Well, then how do I know it's there? And what does it do? Well, it, it doesn't do anything. Ah, oh, okay. Well, the Lord called his church to serve. How does the universal invisible church serve? So we have to consider these things when we try to define a church. Never in scripture do we see the church referred to as a universal or invisible body of believers. It is always depicting a particular congregation, uh, a local assembly. Consider the letters written to the seven churches in Asia. We see those in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. We see the letters written to the seven churches in Asia. Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Each church is individually addressed. Even more than this, each church had different issues. Each church had a different problem the Lord was, was, was referring to. Certainly, if the church is universal in its nature, then one letter would have been addressed to the collective church, not the individual churches. In fact, only in the book of Revelation do we see reference in Scripture to a collective universal gathering of the members of the kingdom of God. Only in Revelation, and only in one instance. And in this place, they are not referred to as a church. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And let's look at verse number 9. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 we read here, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Did the word church appear there? Wouldn't it have been, wouldn't it have been an ideal opportunity for the scripture to stay and say, And this I beheld, and lo, a great gathering of Christians, a great church was assembled. No, we don't see that. We don't see that because it wasn't a church. Now, given this, I cannot accept the teaching of a universal church. Such teaching has no basis nor support in Scripture. It is a teaching, teaching that lessens the necessity and the importance 
of the local church. Did you hear that? A universal church teaching negates the importance of the local church. Because if there is a universal church, and I'm a believer, then I'm a part of that universal church. Therefore, the local church is optional. And that's the opinion of a lot of people. Well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. I can worship God in the lake as well as I can in the church. I've heard that a lot down in Louisiana when I've witnessed to those old fishermen. I can worship God in my boat. I say, yeah, but do you? Do you? Where, where's the praise? Where's the, where's the singing? Come before his presence with singing. Where's the singing? Do you, do you sit on the lake and sing? Do you sit on the lake and, 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 and praise God? Where's the preaching? Is there any preaching out there? Where's the offering? We gather to give, right? Where's the offerings? It's a philosophy that gives way to ecumenicalism and apostasy. Yet nowhere in Scripture do we see such a philosophy promoted or encouraged. In fact, we see exactly the opposite. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Come out from among them. Be separate unto the Lord. Scripture does not lead us toward a one church philosophy, a concept of a universal church. And by the way, the Spirit of God does not lead us in that direction either. And the Spirit leads us into what? All truth. That's right. The Spirit will never lead us into anything that's not truth. So what is the church? Well, let us define the church as a local gathering, an assembly of believers united in a common belief of doctrine and practices of faith. Hebrews chapter 10, we read, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. So we can confirm from Scripture that a church is a local assembly of believers. It is, we are, we are admonished in Hebrews chapter 10, to not forsake that assembly. So you see, the thing about a universal con church concept is, as I said earlier, it makes church optional. Well, you know, I don't feel like going to church today, but that's okay because I'm part of the universal church. So I'll say a little prayer, and, and I'll, I'll take a few moments to read the scripture and, and, and worship God that way. But that devalues, as I said, the, the local church. And, and, and let me tell you this. If you have children, 
and you don't teach them to be in church on Sunday, don't expect them to go to church when they get older. Don't expect it to happen. Um, the church is, is of vital importance. It's, it's that for which Christ gave his life. He died for the church. It's his bride. He loves the church. And we are to love the church as well. Now, with the time I have this morning, I'm going to look at three thoughts. Three thoughts concerning the local church. These are three truths that a universal church cannot accomplish. These three things we're going to look at today will not happen in a universal church because it cannot happen. And these are the, these are the responsibilities of the church. Therefore, uh, we, must, we must understand the importance of them. Number one, we gather to worship God. We gather to worship God. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 99. Let's all go there together. Psalm 99, and we'll read this psalm. Verse 99, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. Now, that, that, that's a good lesson for America to learn, amen? The Lord, the Lord is in control. The Lord reigneth. And it's about time that we in America start shaking in our boots, because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Uh, he sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. I, I mentioned to a lady at work this last week. I walked up and she said, oh my God. I looked at her and said, you ought not do that. And she looked at me and said, I'm sorry. What did I do? And I explained to her that people think that when the Bible says not to use the Lord's name in vain, that is cursing. And I said, certainly if you curse using the Lord's name, that's not a good thing. But I told her, I said, the name of God is so holy and so reverent. We should never utter that name unless we are praying are praising his name. And she just looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> but look at it. It says, uh, let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Listen, teach your children not to say that. And, and, and by the way, young people, don't substitute something else, because God knows what you mean in your heart. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou, doest, thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests and Samuel among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord, our God. Thou wast the God that forgavest them. Thou, uh, though thou tookest vengeance, 
of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Notice verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Then again, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. The psalmist is careful to indicate that there is a specific place of worship. Did you notice that in those two verses? At his footstool, at his holy hill. How many of you have ever heard someone say, I can worship God anywhere? I don't need to be in church. Yeah, we've, we've all heard that. I mentioned it earlier. Those that hold to the first of the two opinions I gave earlier will argue that church is not a place of worship. In fact, in many Baptist churches today, you will never hear them use the terms worship service. I remember when we first put the phrase celebration assembly in our bulletin. Some people, there were some people really shaken by that. And then we followed that up with worship service and that shook people up even more. And this is because they do not acknowledge that church is a place of worship. Or as pastor says, worship. (laughs) Now I've stated this before. I do not have to, I did not have to come to church today. I I didn't. I I woke up this morning early and and, and prayed and, and studied and got ready. I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that. I I get to do that. I have the privilege of coming to church. I have the church of being a member of a local assembly. I have the privilege of coming together and singing the hymns and worshiping God in his glory. I have the privilege of, of serving and laboring alongside each of you in this local church. That's a privilege. It's not, it's not, we're not, we don't have to do it. And if, and if you're here today and you have that opinion, oh, man, I have to go to church today. Shame on you. Your heart is cold if that's, if that's what you feel. You need to, you need to get on your knees and, and ask God to light that fire in your, in your heart again. What a great privilege it is. You young people, don't ever think you're wasting your time in church. <laughs> you never waste your time at the foot of Jesus. I don't have to be here today. I I get to be here. We're not here because of duty today, although it is our duty to be here today. We're not here to fulfill a need today, though we have a need to be here today. We've come together to praise and worship God. And all that we do here is to that end, to worship God. Our music should praise and worship God, not depress the soul, yet not exalt the flesh. Our preaching should exalt and glorify God, not promote self. I don't want to go to church and sit down and listen to a preacher stand behind a pulpit and talk about all the things he did this week. Talk about himself and talk about him and how how hard his life is and how great he is. I I want to hear preaching that glorifies and exalts God. 
Our fellowship should encourage each other, not boost one's own ego. So we gather to worship God. Then number two today, we unite to serve God. We gather to worship God. And then number two, we unite to serve God. Remember, these are, these are things that the universal church cannot do, cannot accomplish. We gather to worship and we unite to serve God. Acts chapter 2. And all that believed were together. Let's, you know, let's turn there. Go to Acts chapter 2. The Easter Bunny can wait a little while. Easter Bunny come to my house, he's going to end up as a fricassee. I'll tell you that right now. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Look what it says here. And all that believed were together. Does it say all that believed were scattered around? No, they were together. They, they assembled, they united. And had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods. And parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You see that? These people united together. They pulled all their resources together, had all things common. They sold all their goods and they they parted as men had need. What were they doing? They were serving God in that place. And they united to serve the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that those who believe in the universal church always have to come to the local church to recruit people to help them work in their ministries. They do. These parachurch organizations... What are they, what are they, about twice a year, you'll see one of them pop up in your church service. And they're dressed in a nice suit. And they want the pastor to promote their program. They want him to distribute their, their literature. And if any in the church feel compelled to help serve in this ministry, then, then join in with us. And I guarantee you, those people always are universal church people. You see, they don't have an assembly to pull from. They don't have people to recruit. They have to go and try to pull from the local church. But the local church doesn't have that issue. Well, we still have that issue, but we don't have the same issue. We have trouble getting people to serve, but we have lots of people to pull from. We come together here and we pull our talents and resources to serve the Lord. Uh, music ministry, things such as the Pioneer Club, visitation programs, the youth ministry, all these things. King Solomon, in his wisdom, understood the need for us to work together. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he writes, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly Broken. What is Solomon saying here? One man standing alone isn't very strong. Two, <laughs> two men together are, are stronger. 
But three people together is almost unstoppable. And he's talking there about the unity of the brethren coming together to, in the assembly of the church and serving together and laboring together to accomplish that which God has, has purposed for us to do. We gather to worship God. We gather, we unite to serve God. But then, thirdly this morning, we submit to honor God. Now folks, this is one thing I can tell you with no doubt that the universal church, those who hold to the universal church, they do not submit to the authority of God. You can argue that with me until the cows come home. But I know it from experience. They do not submit to the authority of God in their lives. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Now the problem with the universal church is that there is no discipline in their membership and there's no church to discipline them. There is no one to hold you accountable for your actions and behaviors. And it is my experience that most universal church believers are very carnal in their lifestyles. God demands obedience from his children. And when we unite with a local church, we are, in essence, submitting ourselves to abide in agreement with the precepts of that local church. You know, one of the things I really like about Pastor Smith is he interviews every prospective member, and they sit in his office, and he explains to them our, our church bylaws. And he explains to them that by being a member in this church, you agree to abide by all of these expectations. See, most churches are just in such a hurry to add numbers to their role, they don't care if that person's saved. They don't care if he's been baptized scripturally. They don't care uh, if, if he agrees to all of the expectations of the church. They don't care if he believes in their doctrine. They don't care about any of that. They just want to be able to go to a conference somewhere and say, oh, we had 58 decisions last Sunday. 58. Oh, wow. Praise the Lord. But don't count your eggs until they've hatched. Okay? And I'm not trying to be unkind here, folks. I'm just being factual. This is what, this is what drives these people. I, I know, I was in that... I was in that group for quite a while. I went to their conferences. Never once did they come up to me and say, Brother Abshaw, how's your family? How's your wife and kids? They doing okay? Good. How about your church families? They all doing well? No, it was always, first thing they said when they come, Hey, brother, how many decisions you had Sunday? I didn't have any. Lord might have had some, but I didn't have any. It's, it's, listen, churches, churches are, are, are all mixed up today. They really are. God demands obedience from his children. 
Now, this concept is consistent with the teachings of Paul and Peter, James and John, as outlined in the, in the Holy Scriptures. So what is church? It is not a building built with hands. It is not a mystical, invisible collection of people professing to be saved. What is church? Let me give you the last statement on your, on your study sheets. It is a local, visible, called out, meaning the elect, assembly of believers, united under a common doctrine, worshiping, serving, and honoring God with their lives. That is what the church is. And that's what our pastor and our deacons and our members in this church strive to make sure that we have here at Berean Baptist Church. A local, visible, called out assembly of believers united with a common doctrine, worshiping, serving, and honoring God with our lives. All right, folks, we'll continue our study into the church next, in two weeks, Lord willing, and uh, if not, in three weeks, Lord willing. But uh, have a great day, and you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.